Chapter 2 What is a tabernacle and what is its purpose? There are two Hebrew words that are translated as tabernacle or tent in the English versions of the Bible. Both of those words also mean dwelling or dwelling place, and they both appear together in 2 Samuel 7 6. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. Both words are used to refer to the tents that many people used in Bible times. The first time that the word tabernacle appears in the King James Version of the Bible is in Exodus 25.9. The Lord had just told Moses in the previous verse that he wanted to dwell among his people. He then told Moses that he wanted him to make a tabernacle exactly in accordance to the pattern that he would show him. Hebrews 8, 2-5 explains to us why God insisted that the earthly tabernacle would be built according to a precise pattern. Its design was to be a reflection or shadow of God's heavenly dwelling place, the tabernacle that he pitched. Here we have a clear message. Since God dwells in worship, and since God has commanded that his dwelling place or tabernacle be built in strict adherence to heaven's pattern, then worship cannot be offered based on our pattern, ideas, or preferences. God's tabernacle had three sections, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. All the people of Israel could enter the outer court to perform various God-ordained rituals. However, only the priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, but then only once each year. There was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, and the high priest went beyond that veil only once each year on the Day of Atonement. Within the holy of holies, Moses was instructed to place a wooden box that was covered with gold within and without. He was also instructed to place inside the box the two tables, or tablets, of stone that God had given him when he was on Mount Sinai in God's presence. The Ten Commandments were written upon those tables. The cover for the box was made of pure gold, and out of either end of the cover two cherubims were formed from the same piece of pure gold. This cover was called the mercy seat, and the literal presence of Almighty God dwelled between the cherubims, as Psalms 81 tells us. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. The box and mercy seat are called the Ark of the Covenant throughout the Bible. Consider the awesomeness of the Ark of the Covenant. Neither the priests nor anyone else in Israel were ever permitted to see the Ark of the Covenant after it was placed in the Holy of Holies and God's presence had descended upon it. There was one exception. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies once each year on the Day of Atonement, but he knew that his life was in danger if he failed to fulfill God's instructions for him as he entered God's presence. Referring to the high priest, the Lord told Moses, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. 
Leviticus 16, 12 and 13. So then, since that cloud covered the mercy seat, it is doubtful that even the high priest could see the ark. During Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan, from time to time, God would remove his visible presence from the Holy of Holies. All of Israel could observe when this happened, because the pillar of fire or the cloud that remained on the tabernacle would lift off and lead Israel on the next stage of their journey. The pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day had led Israel ever since they departed from Egypt. When the fire or cloud moved, Israel would follow them on their journey to the Promised Land. Exodus 40, 34-38 Even when the priests disassembled the tabernacle, it is very doubtful that they saw the Ark of the Covenant. God gave clear instructions on how to assemble and disassemble His tabernacle. The first step in preparing for the journey was to cover the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his four sons were instructed to cover the ark with the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Numbers 4-5 And when the camp setteth forward, Aaron shall come, and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil, and cover the ark of testimony with it. Out of reverence, it is very likely that they covered the ark in a way that was similar to how the sons of Noah covered their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Genesis 9.23, New King James Version Of course, the priests did not need to walk backward to avoid seeing the ark. They merely needed to lift the veil from off its hooks and then move forward as they covered the ark. After the ark and the other furnishings in the tabernacle were covered, the Levites were given the task of carrying them, but on penalty of death not even they were permitted to see the ark or the other furnishings. But they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die. Numbers 4.20 Actually, in the course of the history of the ark, many actually did die from either looking into it, touching it, or taking possession of it. It is important to understand that God was not being vindictive, cruel, or capricious in those deaths. Rather, the problem was with the carnal man. It is simply that the flesh of man cannot endure the residual presence of God that the furnishings of his dwelling place contained. Also, sinful man cannot touch that which is holy without consequences. In his kindness, God made a way for his presence to dwell among his people without bringing death upon them. But when God's ways are violated, a holy God must take severe measures. Moses was very accustomed to God's presence, yet not even he could look upon certain aspects of God and live. Exodus 33.20 And he had to handle the furnishings of God's dwelling in precisely God's way. Exodus 40 in one case, God actually did fight for the ark, his dwelling place. It occurred when the Philistines took possession of the ark. This account is found in 1 Samuel 4-6. through At the request of Israel's leaders, the two wicked sons of Eli, the high priest, took the ark out of the tabernacle and carried it into the camp of Israel's armies who were fighting the Philistines. The Philistines were winning the battle against Israel, and the leaders thought that the presence of the ark would save them from the Philistines. They were no longer trusting in the God of the ark. 
Their trust was in the box. The Philistines won the battle and captured the ark, taking it home with them. They quickly learned that the God of the ark was mightier than they were as he smote one city after another with a plague and many of them died. They soon realized their mistake and wisely decided to send the ark back to Israel. They had learned their lessons regarding the awesomeness and holiness of the ark. It was because the God of heaven and earth dwelled between the cherubims over that ark. God taught both Israel and the Philistines a lesson. The God of the ark was the one in whom Israel should have trusted, not in the box. And the God of the ark was greater than all the armies of Israel's enemies. What Israel could not do against the Philistines, the God of the ark did. He brought them down. He defeated them. When the ark arrived back in Israel, it was received by the people of the city of Beth Shemesh. They decided that they had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see the ark. And because they chose to do so, 50,070 of them died. 1 Samuel 6, 19 So, not only the Philistines learned that mishandling the ark brought death to the flesh, but Israel learned that also. Twenty years later, even King David learned that mishandling the ark brought death. He was moving it on a cart in the way that the Philistines had moved it, which was not God's way. Uzzah, the priest, steadied it when the oxen pulling the cart shook it. The moment he touched the ark, he died. 2 Samuel 6, 3-7 Later, David realized that they had mishandled the ark because God's way of moving it was not by means of a cart as the Philistines had done. God had ordained that the Levites would carry it on their shoulders. Again, the awesomeness and holiness of the ark was revealed. The ark dwelled in three different places. There were about 840 years between the days of Moses and the Babylonian captivity of the Jews when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. During those years, God chose to dwell between the cherubims in three different places. First, he dwelled in the tabernacle of Moses for over 400 years between the days of Moses and the reign of King David. Second, during David's reign, David prepared a common tent for the ark that was located where he resided. The Bible calls it the tabernacle of David. The ark was in that tent for about 30 years. Then Solomon built the Temple of Solomon where the ark remained for another period of more than 400 years. Each of these places was ordained by God to reveal beautiful truths about his heavenly dwelling place. We are called to be his eternal and heavenly dwelling place. 2 Corinthians 6.16 Revelation 21.3, speaking of the new heaven and new earth, declares, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This has been God's desire from the beginning, and this desire will be eternally fulfilled. The Tabernacle of Moses The Tabernacle of Moses, with all its intricate detail, reveals truths about the pattern to which God is conforming us. The tabernacle of Moses reveals the spiritual characteristics required to be God's dwelling place, characteristics that he wants to form in our lives. 
One example of this is seen in the altar. As we explained in chapter 1, the New Testament shows us that there is an altar in the life of a Christian, and it explains what the sacrifices are that we offer on that altar. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Hebrews 13, 10, and 15. The Temple of Solomon The Temple of Solomon was by far the costliest building ever constructed in the history of humanity. The Twin Towers together in New York City cost $900 million in 1975, or just under $1 billion. That is nothing compared to the more than $300 billion in gold and silver used in Solomon's temple. This does not count the very costly precious stones that were used, nor the cost of labor, nor the cost of the very fine lumber, nor the cost of the brass and enormous stones. By means of the Temple of Solomon, God has given to mankind some very wonderful messages. First, our God is worthy of a glorious temple, but we are his temple. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Are we worth what Solomon's enormous investment revealed? That God's temple is of extreme value? Jesus taught us that a man's soul is worth more than the whole world. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. We have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ, an infinite price paid by an infinite God. Now, through the new birth, he places his very life within us. We have this infinite treasure in our earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Because of this, in the heart of our Heavenly Father, our temple is worth more than all the earth, because His Son, who lives within us, is worth more to Him than all the silver and gold of Solomon's temple, and more than the entire universe. The Tabernacle of David Between the intricacy of the Tabernacle of Moses and the enormous cost of the Temple of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant dwelled for 30 years in a simple tent called the Tabernacle of David. David pitched the tent at his residence on Mount Zion and placed the Ark in it. More than 200 years after David's death, God revealed through the prophet Amos an unbelievable divine desire and also a glorious beauty found in his nature. In the days of Amos, the overwhelming grandeur of the Temple of Solomon, with all its riches, was still functioning daily, and gorgeously arrayed priests were performing the divinely ordained rites of their priesthood. As we have seen, the cost of Solomon's temple was many times more than the cost of any building that mankind has ever built. In spite of this, God revealed in the Bible the desire of his heart regarding where he wants to dwell forever. God's choice reveals his infinite humility. In the context of the last days, God spoke through the prophet Amos, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. 
and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. Amos 9, 11 and 12, 14. This is the passage that the Apostle James quoted in Acts 15, 15 through 17, regarding what the Lord was doing in and through his church. It confirms that when David's tabernacle is rebuilt, all the Gentiles upon whom the Lord's name is called will seek the Lord. It is important to note that the apostles referred to their period in history as the last days, Acts 2, 15-17. See also Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. They were not mistaken. It was the last days of the Old Testament period and the beginning of a new day. We are now in the last days of the New Testament period and about to enter another new day, the kingdom of God. Undoubtedly, the most complete fulfillment of Amos' prophecy is for our last days, because God has now begun to fulfill his promise to gather Israel from their captivity, and Israel is building again the waste cities. The fact that God has chosen the tabernacle of David as his eternal dwelling place is confirmed also by Isaiah 16.5. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. The Lord also confirms this through Psalms 132.11-14. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. At the end of the Bible, we find that the Lord is dwelling on Mount Zion as Revelation 14.1, New King James Version, shows us. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads. What is so special about Zion that Almighty God would want to dwell there forever? In the Bible, Zion is also called the City of David, 1 Kings 8.1. By far, what made Zion extremely important in David's day was that he pitched a tabernacle there and placed the Ark of the Covenant in it, 2 Samuel 6, 17. As we have seen, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, was still dwelling upon that Ark. Can we imagine this scene? The God of all creation was content to dwell in a tabernacle or tent that David pitched for it on his own property. Even more amazing is that God still wants to dwell in the tabernacle of David. He wants to dwell in us. What humility! We will see that David had discovered what God desires to inhabit, and David provided that habitation for the Lord. It was, and still is, far more than a physical tent. God's eternal dwelling place will definitely not be a physical tent. It is a spiritual habitation that we, too, can prepare and also become for the Lord. Imagine, the infinite Creator not only reveals infinite humility by being interested in what we think about Him, but He also desires to live within us. This not only reveals infinite humility, but also His infinite love. It is more than awesome, more than glorious, 
more than astounding, stunning, or astonishing. It is more than earthly words can begin to express. The Bible declares that God humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Psalms 113.6 Yet he humbles himself even beyond the words of the psalmist in such a profound way that he not only takes note of us, who are less than a speck in his universe, but he chooses to live in and through us. Ponder the humility and simplicity of our God to pass by the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon and choose to dwell in something so simple and financially accessible as what David provided for him. Imagine, such a God wants to live in us. He wants us to be blessed both now and forever. He wants to share himself with us. We are his dwelling place. We are his temple. But everything must be done in accordance to his ways and not ours. In the rest of this book, we want to see the incredible importance of the tabernacle of David and how it must be built in our own lives. We must adhere to its divine design, or else we will be stranded in a state of spiritual poverty by rejecting or ignoring God's design, as so many are doing today.